Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. You can see that he has a sense of humor. He has an ease about him. Um, you can see some of his his uh, flaws as well, that he, he is self-interested at times. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Brooke Barbier discussing her new book on John Hancock. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author, Brooke Barbier, discussing her new book, King Hancock, the Radical Influence of a Moderate Founding Father. And she's talking about her new article, featured at the Journal of the American Revolution as well. Brooke is a great friend of the show, uh, and a wonderful contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution, and as, a, as I've mentioned, an author of two books. Her new study of John Hancock reveals the man uh, in a form that we don't typically think of him. We see him as a moderate, and sometimes uh, physically as a very frail person. It's a wonderful book, and we're so lucky to have her. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Brooke Barbier. Brooke Barbier, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Brady. I'm excited to be back again. Brooke, you've been on the show before. Remind us about your background. I have a PhD in American history from Boston College, and my area of expertise is Boston during the American Revolution and the early Republic. And when I was last on, I talked about my article about Paul Revere and historic sites in Boston, which ties in with what uh, I also do in Boston, which is I own a tour company called Yield Tavern Tours that leads guests to see historic sites in Boston, but also stop to drink a beer or cider in three historic taverns. What made you interested in John Hancock? On my tours, one of the most frequently asked questions is always about John Hancock and how he made his money. And I realized that there's a, there was a real lack of substantive conversation in histories about the American Revolution that included John Hancock. He's often presented as sort of a one-dimensional, vapid dupe, and I knew he was much more than that. He is one of the most popular men in all of North America, certainly the most popular man in Massachusetts, and I wanted to bring that forward. What kind of person was John Hancock? How would you describe his personality? That's a really great question. And I think not to give a complicated answer, but I think the last part of your question is what I'll start with, which is what was he like to be around? And I think it depended on who you were. If you, John Hancock was so gifted at connecting with people 
despite being the wealthiest man in Boston, he had a real gift for connecting with the lower orders, orders, people like artisans and apprentices and longshoremen. And it seemed that he showed even humility in front of them. He extended them um, hospitality with food and drink. He traded jokes with them. But among men of his own rank, he wasn't as congenial, it seems. So I think it would depend on on (laughs) who you were to know how you felt around John Hancock. Broadly, this is a man who liked attention. He wanted to be liked. He was, he wore his wealth very visibly. He wore gilded clothing and a powdered wig and silk stockings would be tended to by liveried servants. And what's interesting is that that might all sound in contrast to what I just said, that he was good at connecting with the lower orders. But that's his real gift, is that despite being so visibly above most people in colonial America, he made most people feel like he was one of them. Could you talk about his sense of style and maybe flashiness? It is. And that was actually something that I chose to focus on in the book as much as possible, talking about his clothing. Because fashion and the clothing that people wear today, as in the 18th century, can be derided as feminine or insignificant or frivolous. But clothing really tells the story of people. It's it's literally the way that you are presenting yourself to the world. And John Hancock seemed to understand this better than most of the members of the founding generation. George Washington would also rival him in understanding the impacts that clothing could have on the way people saw you. So it is true that Hancock dressed in very fine clothing. I mentioned that he usually had embroidered clothing. We see this in his portraits. There's five known portraits of John Hancock. Four of them exist in some public collections. And we really get a sense of his clothing in these these portraits. And they're very different than if you look at portraits of Samuel Adams or John Adams, for example, other Massachusetts contemporaries of Hancock's, but who wear much more um, plain, simple clothing, darker colors, whereas Hancock would be dressed um, in sometimes in brighter clothing. In two of his portraits, he's wearing the same jacket, which may surprise viewers of these paintings and readers of my book. And it surprised me because in some ways you expect something, someone so wealthy to have so many different styles of clothing, but he is repeating his clothing in two of these portraits. And then of course, a powdered wig uh, would accompany his, his fine clothing. And so while he certainly cared about his clothing, I argue that that was a strength of his in helping to connect with people and build his social influence. How did Hancock view the Stamp Act and the subsequent riots that followed? The Stamp Act riots in Boston are such a significant political event, and Hancock has decidedly mixed feelings about it, which actually isn't that surprising. The first attack on Andrew Oliver's house, Andrew Oliver had been named the Stamp Act Collector of Massachusetts. 
And a mob in Boston targets his home, his carriage, and then later his warehouse, where they believed that the stamps were going to be sold or stored and then sold. They target Andrew Oliver's home and warehouse. And Hancock hopes, he writes in a letter, that he hopes that the same spirit of rebellion will pervade the continent, all of North America. And in fact, Hancock's pretty wise in that moment because once other colonies find out about what had happened in Boston and Andrew Oliver resigning from his post after this violence, other violence erupts in other colonies against the stamp tax collectors. But Boston doesn't stop with Andrew Oliver. Less than two weeks after their attack on Andrew Oliver, they target the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson. And that mob was far more devastating to Hutchinson than the mob was to Oliver. And that Hancock did not like. That he called, uh, that he was, a, he was afraid of, and he said that he does not support this type of violence. And part of the reason is because in 18th century America, listeners may know that there is a, an accepted level of, of violence in the streets allowed to protest policies that people felt were unfair. And that's what the mob targeting Andrew Oliver was. was it fell into that realm of accepted violence because they were protesting the Stamp Act and they targeted the Stamp Act collector. But then once the Stamp Act collector resigned to just target another royal official in Hutchinson didn't make sense to Hancock. And in fact, he condemned it. And Samuel Adams, someone far more radical than John Hancock, also condemned it. So the Stamp Act, Hancock wanted people to, other merchants he included, to boycott goods and to make their feelings known about their displeasure about the Stamp Act. But the, he didn't want the really unprovoked violence that happened against Thomas Hutchinson. And so it may sound inconsistent, but it actually falls in line with, with what others in the 18th century felt about such violence. How did his views on revolution change over time? That's a, that's a good question. So I kind of see it as before independence and after independence. I don't structure the book this way, but a reader will, will see the way that Hancock changes. So before independence, Hancock is a moderate in a time and place of radicals. After the Tea Act is passed in 1773, Hancock is a supporter of the destruction of the tea, as the Boston Tea Party was known at the time. But then he pulls back from the radicals. So just when you think he'd gone all in, he pulls back. And then it's not until nearly a year later when he is named president of the Provincial Congress, which was similar, essentially a shadow government. And when he's named president, that means he's going, if not all in, he's at least acknowledging that he doesn't want royal rule anymore. But once at the Second Continental Congress, he's moderate again. He doesn't support independence right away. And John Adams and Samuel Adams, far more radical than Hancock, are getting upset with Hancock and his fellow Massachusetts delegate, Thomas Cushing, because they 
want them to be more eager to declare independence. There's reasons that Hancock and Cushing are not eager to declare independence, namely that they've profited by being a part of the British Empire for decades, they and their family, and there's no assurance that declaring independence would make them any better off financially or otherwise, whereas the Adams cousins have less to lose in that regard. So once Hancock does decide to support independence, he doesn't ever again waver on the American cause. He then supports the war effort and, as the governor of Massachusetts, is governing as an independent state as part of the United States. But he uses his moderation again in 1780 when Massachusetts formalizes its constitution until Hancock's death in 1793, we're seeing him being politically moderate again. So like I said, after independence, he's all in on the American cause, and that makes him a, a rebel against the British Empire. But once he's governing the state, he, he eases back into his moderation. Brooke, talk about his personal struggles with illness and physical malaise. Yeah, it's, it's really uh, quite sad to read other people's accounts of Hancock's health struggles because he suffered from gout very acutely in his later years to the point where he wouldn't be able to hold a quill, where he couldn't walk on his own. He would be pushed in a wheelchair at times, carried into rooms by servants. He wasn't able to wear his usual fine clothing. It would be presumably too tight on his legs or his limb, you know, or his arms. And so uh, his health challenges were really significant and stopped him from being an effective governor in the mid-1780s. He resigned from his post as governor because of his health issues. He ultimately gets elected back two years later, but he resigns from his post as governor as a result of that. And then he dies young as a result of, of his health problems. I'll also say pretty interestingly it is because of his health problems that he may not have been named vice president, the first vice president, when the Massachusetts Constitutional Ratifying Convention met, Hancock was its president, and they weren't sure if Hancock was going to support or, or go against the Constitution. And Federalists, that is the people who supported the Constitution, lobbied Hancock very hard. And they said that if he came out in support of con the Constitution, they hinted very heavily that he might even be named president if Virginia didn't ratify. If it did, it was kind of a given that George Washington would be president. And then if Virginia ratified and Hancock threw his weight behind the Constitution, that he might be named vice president. Ultimately, of course, we know John Adams became the first vice president, and there are those who say that the reason he wouldn't, wasn't going to be selected was because of his health. How did Hancock view the U.S. Constitution? He is initially doesn't seem to be supportive of it, and it's relatively easy to see why. He is the governor of what he calls a separate republic, of a, what he views as a sovereign state. 
And he's very leery about a large central government, federal government, taking some of his state's rights away. And federalists are nervous because Hancock has influence in the state. And it was pretty accepted that the state was about 50-50 for and against the Constitution, but that it leaned more against. It sounded like the Constitution was very, would, would not be ratified in Massachusetts. This is not a small deal. The Constitution needed just nine states to ratify to become the new government structure. And they were already halfway to that number when Massachusetts began their convention. But Massachusetts was considered a swing state that because it was a large state and because it had such strong revolutionary credentials, George Washington and James Madison feared that New York might be influenced by the decision of Massachusetts and Virginia could be influenced. New Hampshire held off on their ratification convention until they heard what Massachusetts decided. So it wasn't simply one state deciding, it was a linchpin. It was viewed as a linchpin. Whether or not it would have been a linchpin, you know, we don't know. And so the Federalists, like I said, lobbied Hancock really hard. And they said to him, if you come out and support the Constitution, we'll let you propose amendments, changes to it. And this hadn't been done by anyone in any state to date. Essentially, the Constitutional Convention, when they sent the Constitution to states, said, you ratify it or you don't. And so what Hancock was doing was saying, well, if we're going to ratify it, I actually want these changes made. And so Hancock comes out ultimately and supports the Constitution with these proposed amendments. And every other state that ratified after Massachusetts also proposed such amendments. I will say Massachusetts, of course, ratifies, uh, excuse me, not of course, Massachusetts ratifies the Constitution. And of course, it ultimately becomes the law of the land. But even Hancock's influence had its limits. The Constitution narrowly passes in Massachusetts despite Hancock's influence. So, but for that, it likely would have failed. Brooke, could you tell us about his final days? I explore his death pretty briefly, actually, but the epilogue of my book explores his legacy. And so I'll just say a little bit more about both. His death comes pretty quickly. He had still been entertaining. He had recently taken a trip out to Concord uh, a few months before he dies. And he dies at 56, which is, is young at this time. His wife outlives him for nearly another three decades. Um, so when he dies, he dies as a sitting governor. And the job then goes to his lieutenant governor, Samuel Adams. He dies without a will. And so his belongings end up in probate court. And um, his significant land holdings, all of it's pretty messy as a historian, you can only speculate why he would die without a will, especially someone of his means who inherited his wealth because of wills from his uncle and his aunt. And so my epilogue then explores how after his death, 
he becomes known essentially as a one-dimensional figure being synonymous with signature. And part of that also explores that when he dies without a will, his property, his wife starts selling off his property pretty quickly after he dies. And then ultimately the Hancock mansion, which had stood for nearly a century and a half gets leveled in Boston. And that really sparks a preservation movement in not just Massachusetts, but in the country because Americans, but particularly Bostonians, were so surprised to see the mansion of such a prominent citizen be destroyed and have townhouses built up. Brooke, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? That's a great question. With the article specifically, I wanted to show his personality and politics with those 10 quotations. And I think in some of those quotations, you can see that he has a sense of humor. He has an ease about him. Um, you can see some of his, his um, flaws as well, that he, he is self-interested at times. But all of this shows him to be a human. Ultimately, he's a human being. Every member of the founding generation was flawed and trying to find their way. And I think when we explore Hancock as being someone beyond simply his signature, that we humanize a generation, we can see honestly and candidly the mistakes that they made, that they acknowledged making or didn't acknowledge making, and really see them for the three-dimensional people that they were. So I, I hope with the article that um, there's a couple of quotations that come to mind uh, uh, that show his personality. For example, when he calls to Paul Revere, come in, we're not afraid of you. Uh, just hours before the Battle of Lexington rages, it shows that he doesn't recognize the world event that's about to happen and um, has sort of a sense of humor about him. The quotation about his clothing and that it's expensive to appear in character shows what we talked about earlier, that with his clothing, it was a way to project an image. He did it very self-consciously. He knew what he was doing. Uh, so I hope that the reader finds that with those quotations. And then if they read the book, I hope they see the ways that a moderate, a political moderate, is so essential during a time of revolution. Revolution, we think of radicals and rebels, and Hancock was neither of those. And so the book explores the history of the American Revolution through the actions of a moderate, who ended up being quite influential. Brooke Barbier, thanks again. Thank you so much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.